Let's turn together in our Bibles to Romans chapter 13, verse 1. If any of you were looking up this way during the offertory song, you might have noticed me nodding towards the back. And that's because Jason was sending me signals up to the front. And I started laughing because I'm still not exactly sure what his signals meant. But I nodded at him as if I did. (laughs) He was doing this. I, I think I finally figured it out. I had a guy that worked at the back in a a balcony at a previous church I pastored, and he handled the sound and the radio, and he was always giving me signals up at the front while I was preaching, before the preaching, all of this. The unfortunate thing was he made the same signal for everything. There could have been a bear loose in the church, and it would have been this right here. Your mic may have been off. It was this right here. So, I mean, every signal, Super Bowl is on, get through with the sermon, this right here. Every signal was exactly the same. So I'm not good at hand signals. Cheryl would tell you I'm not very good at following verbal signals either. So hand signals are much more difficult than that. Romans chapter 13, verse 1 through 7 is where we are this morning. This is a passage about church and state. I want to laugh now again because I I wonder, maybe you can wonder with me. Do you think that Thomas Jefferson ever thought that that little phrase would become nearly as big as it has become in our country? Uh, that little phrase being church and state. This is certainly a, a timely message because Friday was the 4th. But it's the next message that we come to in the book of Romans. This relationship between church and state is controversial, to say the least. It always has been. But the important thing for us as Christians to remember is that there is one. This passage shows us how that relationship between church and state is to go. Those of you that have been here, I want you to remember that this is still in line with the Christian way of life that we've been talking about in Romans chapter 12. A part of the way that we are to live because we have been saved through faith in Jesus involves rightly relating to government. So let's read about it. Beginning in verse 1 of Romans chapter 13. It says, everyone must submit to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist are instituted by God. So then, the one who resists the authority is opposing God's command, and those who oppose it will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have its approval. For government is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, because it does not carry the sword for no reason. For government is God's servant, an avenger that brings wrath on the one who does wrong. 
Therefore, you must submit, not only because of wrath, but also because of your conscience. And for this reason, you pay taxes, since the authority are God's public servants, continually attending to these tasks. Pay your obligations to everyone. Taxes to those you owe taxes. Tolls to those you owe tolls. Respect to those you owe respect. And honor to those you owe honor. We find in this passage, these first seven verses of Romans chapter 13, two facts that every Christian, two facts that the church must understand in order to rightly relate to the state. Two facts then about church and state. The first of these two is that Christians are to submit to the government. That's fact number one. Christians are to submit to the government. And you can see that in the opening words of the passage, verse 1, the very first part. Everyone must submit to the governing authorities. That word submit means to subordinate. It means that Christians are to recognize and acknowledge that in the pecking order, we are beneath the government. We are under the authority of the government. It's one of those authority figures that God has placed in our life just like he's placed other authority figures in our life, ultimately to point us to the fact that he is the authority over all. We are to submit. We are to acknowledge that we are beneath them, at least in terms of who tells who what to do. And the beginning word of verse 1 was that word, everyone, which literally would be translated every soul. And every soul includes every Christian. You've got to keep in mind that when Paul wrote this to the church at Rome, they were under the rule of a government that wasn't Christian friendly. That wasn't Christian at all. It's very likely that all of the authority figures in the lives of these early Christians were unbelievers. And then on top of that, keep in mind that many of these believers were from a Jewish background. And the Jews had a hard time with acknowledging anyone as their authority other than God. They had a hard time with submitting to government authorities. They thought that paying taxes to government authorities was a terrible thing, as many of you will remember from an occasion in the life of Jesus that we'll look at a little while later in the sermon. So Paul is writing to these Christians that are suffering in their Christianity because of the government. He's writing to these Christians that are being told by some that they ought to join with others in revolting against the government. And he reminds them that it is the duty of every believer, it's the duty of the believers as a group, the church, to submit to the governing authorities. Keep your finger there in Romans chapter 13 and flip over in your New Testament to the book of Titus chapter 3 verse 1. Titus chapter 3 verse 1. 
And here we'll find very similar language to what we're reading in Romans 13. Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write in Titus chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Remind them, that's the people of your church, to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to slander no one, to avoid fighting, and to be kind, always showing gentleness to all people. The point here then is this general rule that in order to live the Christian way of life, we must find ourselves as individuals and as a group, the church, submitting to the authority of the recognized governing authorities in our life. I will be the first to admit to you that this passage seems to leave as many questions unanswered as it does answered. I'm not going to go into it this morning, but have you ever considered in light of this passage were Christians justified in being a part of the American Revolution? We could go on for days about that. Don't have time to go into it today. What about the church in Germany when Hitler had taken over? Were pastors and theologians and Christians like Bonhoeffer justified in their being a part of continuing efforts to overthrow his government? Lots of implications to a passage like this. We don't have time to cover all of the eventualities and answer all of the questions. And I don't know that that's even the intent here. I would simply suggest that the general intent, the general instruction is that for the most part, believers, Christians, and the church are to align themselves under the authority of the government, even Bad governments. Such was the case here. There may be reasons for failing to obey this command. There may be reasons for Christians disobeying the government. They would have to be serious reasons, though, wouldn't you agree? I'll give you three to think about. They're not unique with me. I've read about them in theologians and apologists, things like that. I've heard other pastors talk about them. A good rule of practice would be this, though. The only occasion in which a Christian or the church should disobey the government would be, number one, if to obey the government causes you to disobey God. If a rule of government, if a law of government would cause you, an individual Christian, or the church as a whole, to disobey God, then we absolutely have to disobey government in the name of obeying God. There's an example of that in the book of Acts. 
You remember when Peter and John were preaching shortly after the birth of the church and they were instructed by the authorities not to preach in the name of Jesus anymore. Specifically, they were told not to preach about the resurrection of Christ. And their response was, we'll leave it up to you to judge whether it's right for us to disobey you or disobey God. And then in the next chapter, their response was, as they continued to preach Christ and His resurrection in disobedience to the rule of government, their response was, we must obey God rather than men. So when government's rules or submitting to the government would cause us to be disobedient to God, we certainly have the right to disobey them. A second reason would be when what the government wants you to do, or what an authority figure for that matter in your life, whether it's government or school or an employer or even parents, when what they would want you to do would cause you to do something immoral or unethical. As outlined in Scripture, we certainly would have the right then to disobey government. We don't want, in the name of being obedient to the Bible, to obey government in a way that would cause us to be immoral or unethical. And then a third reason. We wouldn't want to obey the government. We wouldn't want to submit to the government if doing so would cause the individual Christian to violate his or her conscience. And certainly all of us can acknowledge that our consciences don't all work the same. There are heated disagreements among believers who all love the Lord on matters of personal conscience. Maybe the best known of those in a country like ours would be over the subject of pacifism. You do know that there are people who will not take part in our military because in doing so they may be called on to kill someone else and as a part of their faith, even their Christian faith, they would say, my conscience would not allow me to do violence to anyone. These people are so committed to the idea that they wouldn't even be violent towards someone that would be doing violence to their family or to their friends. Now... I don't subscribe to that. But if someone else feels that way, it's no right of mine to tell them that they should not feel that way. It's their conscience, not mine. We would never want to violate our conscience in the name of submitting to or obeying the government. Again, though, don't miss the major point here. That being Christians are to submit to the government. In the verses that follow, what you find are four reasons that Christians should submit to the government. Number one, we should submit to the government because government is an authority from God. Christians should submit to the government because government is an authority from God. Look at verse 1. Everyone, including every Christian, must submit to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from 
God. You understand what he's saying there? God is the authority. All authority that exists is authority that has been given, or as the rest of the verse says, has been instituted by Him. Those that exist, those authorities that exist, governments that exist, they have been instituted by God. God is the authority. Any authority figure in our life is one that has been instituted by God. That's true of government. That's true of the church. That's true of parents. That's true of husbands in the home. That's true of employers. That's true of of those who are older than we are. All of these are authority figures that God has placed in our life to reveal and to reflect the glory of God in His authority. Government is included in that. Even bad government, even corrupt government, in the general way of thinking is included in this authority figure that God has placed within our life. Jesus and Pilate had a conversation about this. Do you remember when Pilate was interviewing Jesus before he was crucified and he said, hey, you you better answer my questions. Don't you know that I have the authority to take your life? And Jesus' response to Pilate was, Any authority that you have is authority that's been given to you by God. As a ruler, he did have authority. But it was authority that had been given to him by God. We've already turned right in our Bibles this morning. Let's turn back to the left, okay? Go back in the Old Testament to Daniel chapter 2. Look at verse 20. I trust that this will be helpful to you in considering our relationship with government and understanding that government is something that has been instituted by God, that it receives its authority to govern from the authority that God has to govern. In Daniel chapter 2, verse 20, Daniel prayed, May the name of God be praised forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to Him. He changes the times and seasons. And listen to this. He removes kings and He establishes kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. That phrase in the midst of verse 21 is the one that I really wanted us to see. Again, did you hear it? God is the one who removes kings, and He's the one who establishes kings, even the bad ones. Even bad ones like Nebuchadnezzar was at this time. And then later on in the book of Daniel, chapter 5, beginning in verse 18, God speaks through Daniel again to Nebuchadnezzar, whose heart has been changed somewhat by this time he says to him beginning in verse 18 of chapter 5 your majesty the most high God gave sovereignty greatness glory and majesty to your predecessor Nebuchadnezzar because of the greatness he gave him all peoples nations and languages were terrified and fearful of him 
He killed anyone he wanted and kept alive anyone he wanted. He exalted anyone he wanted and he humbled anyone he wanted. Now that's power, isn't it? And he had it. Nebuchadnezzar had it before this time. Where did he get it? He got it from God. Verse 20, but when his heart was exalted and his spirit became arrogant, he was deposed from his royal throne and his glory was taken from him. Who deposed him? God did. The same God who put him in authority had the power to take him out of authority. Verse 21, he was driven away from people. His mind was like an animal's. He lived with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like cattle. And his body was drenched with dew from the sky until he acknowledged that the Most High God is ruler over the kingdom of men, all of the kingdoms of men, and sets anyone he wants over it. Those of you that have been reading through the Old Testament this year, do you remember the book of Judges? You remember that phrase that kept popping up over and over again in the book of Judges to explain how the people were so evil? It said, and there was no king in the land in those days, so the people did what was right in their own eyes. I'm not suggesting to you that we should submit to government because everybody in government is good. I'm not suggesting to you that every government is good, nor that even most of the things that governments, even our governments, does or do is good. I am suggesting to you that government, even bad government, is better than the alternative, which would be anarchy. And everybody doing what was right in their own eyes first reason we should submit to the governments because government is an authority from God. Second reason, because resistance to government brings judgment. We as Christians should submit to the government because to resist the authority of the government invites or brings judgment into our lives. I take this from verses 2 and 3. Look there with me if you would. So then, the one who resists the authority, and here he's talking about government, but remember, this would apply to any authority that God has placed in your life. To resist it, to fail to acknowledge it in your life, is to oppose God's command. Disobeying government is far more serious than simply disobeying those who govern The seriousness of it all is to disobey God who has instituted government and government then belongs to Him as a servant under Him. We don't want in the name of disobeying government to also be found guilty of disobeying God. So then the one who resists the authority is opposing God's command. What was His command from verse 1? We're to submit to the governing authorities. It goes on and it says in verse 2, and those who oppose it will bring judgment on themselves. Whose judgment? Well, first the government's judgment, right? If the government has said we're to do this and we're not to do this and we do those things or we don't do those things, 
then there are punishments in place for that disobedience. So to resist the authority of government, to disobey the laws of the land, would invite judgment from the government itself. But more judgment is in line than simply the judgment that would come down from government. Wouldn't you agree with me that to disobey the government, in most cases, would also be to invite the judgment of God on your life? Because you've disobeyed Him as you've disobeyed them or as you've disobeyed it, the government. Verse 3 goes on. And it says, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. I know if we put our heads together, we could think of exceptions to this. There are governments in the world today that have legislated the propagation of the gospel of Christ out. They've said that it's wrong. They are then a terror to good not to bad. There are governments that punish people for doing in the eyes of God what would be the right thing. So this isn't saying there aren't any exceptions to that. It's speaking generally again as a principle or as a rule for the most part down through history and even today rulers or governments are not something that people who do good have to fear. Instead, they're something that people who do bad have to fear. If you consistently drive the speed limit, I'm guessing that every time you see a policeman or a state trooper, you don't, without thinking, slam on the brakes. But if you are one among us who would remain nameless, who exceeds the speed limit from time to time, Even on occasions where you're doing the speed limit and you see an authority figure, the police, you by reflex slam on the brakes and slow down because you're so fearful of having broken the laws of the government. You see then what he's getting at in verse 3? You have nothing to fear from most governments. If you do what's right, it's those who do what's wrong. It's those who break the laws who have something to fear. He goes on and says in verse 3, Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Parents, we know something about this. Has your child ever said, I'm just tired of you getting on to me. You know what our response should be? Do what's right. Don't do what's wrong. We won't get on to you. You know why I know we should say that? Because I heard that growing up. I'll never holler at you. I'll never get on to you. I'll never punish you. If you do what's right and you don't do what's wrong. Do you want to be then unafraid of the authority? Do what is good. And you will have its approval. At the very least, one of the things our founding fathers had in mind when they created a government that was so connected with Scripture, the God of Scripture, even Christianity, was an understanding even among the unbelievers of the founding fathers that Christians would make the best citizens 
theoretically, Christians would make the best citizens. Let's not be disappointing in that regard today. Do what is good, and you will have the approval of the authority figures, including the government. A third reason that Christians should submit to the government is because government is a servant for good. Look at verse 4. For government is God's servant for your good. Note that. And here's something for government to keep in mind. And this would apply to all authority figures, not just government authority figures. If we're in a position of power, authority, we are God's servant in that position. Our obligation and responsibility is to Him. We are responsible to Him. We will give an accounting to Him. Government, those who lead the government in whatever type of government He is, all need to keep this in mind that whether they acknowledge God, the God of Scripture or not, Christ or not, that they have been placed in their position by this God, this one true God, this God of Scripture who has revealed Himself in Jesus. They've been placed in this position to govern by Him. They then are His representative, His servant for our good. Government is done best when those who govern see themselves as servants of God. Also, what those who govern need to keep in mind is that they're the people's servants. That's why it says here, government is God's servant for your good or God's servant for you. Government goes terribly awry when those who do it Forget that they are there for the people, not that the people are there for them. Government is a servant for good, meaning God has given us government. God has given governments unto people for good, to do good things. And I'd be the first to shake my head in agreement with you that our government gets it wrong a lot that there's corruption, that there is mismanagement of money, that there are poor decisions that are made all the time. But do you want to move somewhere else? Do you? I've been watching the World Cup for the past few weeks. Brazil is one of the more developed countries in the world outside of ours. You want to move to Brazil? where their infrastructure is in shambles. You want to move down there and not be certain that when you walk over an overpass that it won't fall in, that it won't take you six hours to go a mile in traffic. Or let's move closer to home. You want to move to Mexico? All of you vacationers, all of you world travelers, want to move to Mexico? Those of you that have been with me, you want to move down to Trinidad, it's nice to visit. But we don't want to stay there forever. You, you see the point that I'm making? Government does a lot of good for us. Has done a lot of good for us. Doesn't excuse the wrong. Doesn't excuse the corruption, the injustice. 
but it does a whole lot of good. And in that way, God has been good to us as Christians in America. In verse 4, Paul gets into a primary way that government can do good to its people. That's through avenging wrong. Look at verse 4 again. For government is God's servant for your good, but if you do wrong, be afraid, because it does not carry the sword for no reason. What would the sword represent there? The same thing a belt represented in my house. Punishment. The avenging, I said a belt, for that matter, whatever was most closely reachable. The avenging of wrong, of disobedience, it does not carry the sword for no reason. Even holding within its hands the power to take the lives of those who most horribly violate the laws of the land. For government is God's servant, an avenger that brings wrath on the one who does wrong. A primary reason for government is the promoting of what is right and the punishment of what is wrong. For the good, for the greater good, for the common good of the people of the land. So we're to submit to the government because it's a servant for good. And then a fourth reason is because of our conscience. Look at verse 5. Therefore, you must submit to the government. Not only because of wrath, not only because you might bring upon yourself the wrath of government or the wrath of God, but also because of your conscience. Now, you may not agree with everything that I've said this morning. You may not agree with my interpretation of this passage. But after you've heard it, your conscience will never be the same. And if you were familiar with it before, it's never been the same. There's something inside of us that God's given to every person. This is even beyond before we're saved. Christians still maintain a conscience. And when we disobey or don't submit to the authority of government in our life, if our conscience is functioning properly, it will react as if it's been violated. You know what that's like, don't you? Guilt, doubt, questions, shame. We must submit to the government because in most cases, our conscience will not allow us as believers to do otherwise. Fact number one, Christians are to submit to the government. Now that brings us to fact number two, and I say this, joke about it sometimes. About this time you're real nervous, you're thinking, it's taken all this time to do fact number one. Well, you don't know everything in front of time. Fact number two is not going to take as long as fact number one, okay? Real short on fact number two. It takes up this much space on my page. How about that, okay? Fact number two, Christians are to support the government. We're to submit to the government. We're also to support the government. And he gives us here two ways that we're to do so. The first is by paying taxes. Verse 6. And for this reason, you pay taxes. For what reason? Because the government is God's servant for your good, and it does good things for us. 
For this reason, you pay taxes, because those things cost. Since the authorities are God's public servants, continually attending to these tasks, which otherwise many of them would not be done, or would not be done nearly as well. Do you remember the context I said that Paul wrote this to? People that were leery of government, government that wasn't friendly to Christians, that even persecuted Christians. People that believed that paying taxes was wrong because the government was bad and did wrong things. It's to these very people that Paul writes and reminds, even to a corrupt government, even to a, a, an unfriendly to Christian, to the church government, you as a Christian have an obligation to pay your taxes. Ray Steadman is a Christian writer and speaker. <laughs> read a confession of his where he said that for two consecutive years when he sent in his tax returns, he didn't address it to the internal revenue service. The first year he addressed it to the infernal revenue service. And the second year he addressed it to the eternal revenue service. And then he said the third year he was very convicted. And so he wrote them a letter and addressed it to the internal revenue service, wrote them a letter of apology. None of us like it. None of us like to feel like somebody is uh, taking money out of our pockets. But it's a duty. And it is a, a Christian duty. And it does work for good things. Maybe not all good things. Maybe some of it, maybe not maybe. Some of it's spent wrongly, poorly, unwisely. Some of it's used for ungodly things even. But we still have an obligation to do it. It's one way we're to support the government by paying our taxes. And then a second way that we're to support the government is by paying respect and honor. Verse 7, in that vein, continues, pay your obligations to everyone. Taxes to those you owe taxes, tolls to those you owe tolls, respect to those you owe respect, and honor to those you owe Honor. Well, who are those who are referenced here that we owe respect and honor? Well, in the context, it's the government. It's these authority figures in their life. We may not agree with them. We may not like them. We may not like their policies. We may not like what they do. But we owe them respect. Their position, their title demands it. God's word demands it. We owe them honor. I'm not a big Facebook guy, but every once in a while, Cheryl calls my attention to something on there, and I'll scroll through. And I look at what friends of mine write 50 times a day. I wonder what else they're doing, by the way. I mean, like post after post or whatever you call it. I don't even know if you call it that about the government. Pictures of Obama, pictures of this leader, pictures of this leader. And it's the most awful things in the world. And I wonder, where does that fit in with respect and honor? Now, I know we have a voice, we have freedom of speech, but I guess the point I'm trying to make is, can we do it a bit more respectfully? C can we do it with a little more honor? With a little more of Christ? A little more in line with what's being spoken of here. Why, you ask? Well, because Christians are to support the government. 
If you have time, read 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. Uh, read 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, which teaches us that a primary way we can respect and honor them is by praying for them. If I posted on Facebook all the time about how bad the government was, what I'd be challenged to do from this message is post less and pray more. Pray more. These are the facts about church and state. So church, are we doing our part? Submitting to the government, supporting the government. Christian, are you doing your part? We're challenged here to commit to it, to recommit to it as a part of the Christian way of life. But before you can live the Christian way of life, you must be a Christian. So are you? Maybe you think you are, or maybe you're not sure. Let me give you some questions to answer to help you evaluate whether you're a, a Christian or not. Are you trusting on Jesus alone to save you? Do you obey God? And do you love others as the general practice of your life? Do you have the Holy Spirit? Are you persevering in the faith? Maybe you flat out know, I'm not a Christian. Well, if you aren't a Christian, repent and believe. Turn from your sin. Even sin of... Not submitting to the authority of the government. Not obeying it always. We're all guilty. Turn from your sin to Jesus and trust on who He is and what He's done to save you. Jesus will make you a Christian. And He will empower you to live the Christian way of life. Which includes having a right relationship between church and state.